Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to explore a small piece of Charles II's story that I guarantee you didn't see coming. So, let's try to figure out who the hell burned the bacon as we get ready to explore why things got so very heated in Colonial Virginia. This episode of DGMH is brought to you by Podcorn, the easy, stress-free way to start monetizing your podcast. Anyone who has started a podcast from scratch dreams of rapid growth and generating some income, but making those dreams into realities can be challenging. But not with Podcorn. Personally, I had no idea who to reach out to, who would be interested in sponsoring my show, or where to even begin. Podcorn changed all of that. Podcorn is a place where podcasters can connect with great, relevant podcast sponsorship opportunities, and you get to work directly with every sponsor. Podcasters, big and small, can browse and choose opportunities right from the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly in a way that is easy for everyone. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you every step of the way. Podcorn gives podcasters creative freedom and full control of how and when we monetize. Just click on the link in my show notes to sign up with Podcorn and start making the most of your podcasting journey. So let's raise a glass to Podcorn. So welcome to the show, everyone. On this episode of The Chaser, we are going to look at Colonial Virginia, specifically during the reign of Charles II, when a massive rebellion broke out. And to discuss this story, I will be downing a few shots of Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey. If you don't know why, well, you soon will. <coughs> oh been a while. Today we are going to dive into a bit of colonial history tied to the reign of Charles II. Here I certainly had a lot to choose from, but I'm going to pass on all that beaver for today. I have decided to focus my efforts primarily on Virginia. Charles II once said, quote, that old fool has put to death more people in that naked country than I did for the murder of my father. These are the words supposedly said by King Charles II upon hearing the news of a mass execution of rebels in one of his colonies. The rebellion bacons. That old fool? Governor of Virginia, William Berkeley. But what events led Charles II to say this, and why do we care? To find out, let's take a look at the chaotic shitshow that was Bacon's Rebellion. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. The Chaser. Before we dive too deep into trying to solve the great mystery of who burnt the bacon, all of this colonial talk got me thinking. Where did Virginia, even the colonies as a whole, stand on the issue of the English Civil Wars? This was surprisingly well connected to today's story. During the Civil War, Puritan colonies like those in the Massachusetts Bay Area were dominated by former parliamentarians that had actually left England for the New World during the reign of Charles I. Virginia, on the other hand, was staunchly royalist. The so-called Virginia Cavaliers resisted Commonwealth rule in practice, but put up little resistance when Cromwell sent a fleet to rein them in. Cromwell had already passed legislation to prohibit all trade with royalist Virginia, and the colony was easily seized. Ironically, the existing governor was deposed in favor of elected assembly, something that Virginians truly came to cherish. But with the restoration came an end to that, and the royal governor was restored. But Virginia would be one of the areas most heavily impacted by Charles II's Navigation Acts of the 1660s. Kind of bit them in the ass. 
It was, however, in this new period of royalist rule that the flames of rebellion began to burn. Actually, the longest period of governorship in English colonial history was held by one of these Virginia Cavaliers, a man named Sir William Berkeley, serving as governor of Virginia from the outbreak of the English Civil Wars in 1642 through to 1677. In the chaos of Charles I's execution, Berkeley actually was the one who offered the exiled Charles II the opportunity to come to the colony and rule as king king in Virginia. Although Berkeley did not rule during the Commonwealth experiment, he was reappointed governor of Virginia by Old Rowley himself in 1660. And this is what moves us towards our hot topic for today. So it's time to answer the age-old question, who burnt the bacon? Actually, in this case, we are going to discuss what bacon burned. That is to say, why the fuck did some guy named Nathaniel Bacon burn Jamestown to the ground? So quick backstory, 17th century colonial Virginia is on the rise. This once coastal colony is expanding inward as former indentures and new colonists aim to blaze their own trail in the new world. The backcountry of the old Virginia colony was inhabited by a multitude of Native American tribes, including Doge, I have also heard it pronounced Doeg, Rappahannock, and Patawomeck. Along with other tribes mixed within, it really is a complicated situation that I don't have time to go into in this episode. Needless to say, there are a lot of different Indian tribes, some of which are at peace with the Virginia colony and others that just aren't. That last one I mentioned, the Patawomeck, was actually an offshoot of the larger Powhatan Confederacy. By the 1660s, the king once again ruled. Tobacco dominated the colonial economy, and the rich just kept getting richer. To start, we should probably highlight why the colonists of Virginia were so ready to rebel in the first place. It wouldn't be wrong to say that one of the primary reasons for this rebellion breaking out was due to the fact that Bacon and his followers simply wanted to expand into existing Indian territory, but were limited in doing so by a government that favored a sort of containment policy. The government plan here was to build fortifications on the frontier to halt Indian, most commonly Doge, raids, thus protecting the colonists and avoiding future conflict with the Indians. But this quickly presented a new set of problems for the colony, as new defenses would mean new taxes. Actually, most colonists didn't have an issue paying these taxes. The real problem was that the taxes collected weren't being used for the reason they were collected in the first place. Instead of lining the frontier with protective forts, the colonial administration, those old Virginia cavaliers like William Berkeley, simply lined their own pockets. Some historians, however, have pointed to class inequality as a primary motive, implying that Bacon himself was using the rebellion as a way to jumpstart his own political rise to power, power his followers had been denied previously. You see, Nathaniel Bacon had actually sat on the Virginia Assembly, but was often ignored by the more elite members that ruled over the colony. Historian of English and Spanish colonial empire J.H. Eliot notes, quote, Governor Berkeley was unsympathetic to the frontiersmen and had no wish to see the colony involved in a full-scale Indian war. Well, the backcountry residents didn't seem to give a shit. Eliot continues, Many of the poor planters, they wanted land, and they wanted protection, but they needed a leader. Enter Nathan Bacon. Eliot notes that Bacon was, quote, Cambridge-educated, quick-witted, and plausible. Bacon, a member of the well-connected East Anglican family of that name, had been packed off to Virginia by his father. Eliot continues, Although taken up by Berkeley, who appointed Bacon to the Virginia Council, Bacon fell out with his patron after Indians murdered his overseer. 
In the end, it appears that the, quote, Indian problem dominated politics, and Bacon and his followers disagreed so strongly with the colonial administration's plan to acquiesce to the indigenous population that they were ready to take action on their own. The rebellion itself is the most interesting part of the story, however, as hundreds of colonists of all different social classes in a mix of white indentures, blacks, women, and even some native inhabitants rose up in armed rebellion against colonial leadership under the direction of Nathaniel Bacon. Particularly fitting for this show, Bacon supposedly showed up to a mass gathering of rebels with a shitload of brandy, got everyone pissed drunk, and they elected him their leader. These rebels, however, did not set out to seize the colonial capital, but instead first marched against the surrounding Okanichi and Susquehannock Indians, who the colonists were actually at peace with at the time. This rebellion, however, actually prompted Governor Berkeley to call for new elections. The newly formed House of Burgesses agreed to commission Bacon and his men to expand into the frontier by military means, if necessary. From here, Bacon would issue his famous, quote, Declaration of the People of Virginia, often called Bacon's Manifesto, which really seemed most clearly to be, as Eliot puts it, quote, Bacon lashing out against the new colonial elite. The new Virginia elite was gaining increased control over tobacco and other trade goods with the Native American tribes, as well as a monopoly on colonial land and power. The lower social classes had had enough of being denied the right to find their own fortunes. So what did he do next? Well, Bacon and his army went on to seize the colonial capital at Jamestown. Berkeley and his men fled, and Bacon and his men eventually burned the colony to the ground. Of course, it is a little more complicated than that, but Bacon was certainly losing control of his followers, who even went on to sack and raise one of Berkeley's own plantations. The seat of colonial power had moved to, quote, Middle Plantation, which would evolve eventually into Williamsburg, Virginia, the city that would become the new colonial capital. But get ready for a really shitty plot twist. Just as the rebellion was getting heated, Bacon's movement went to total shit. Quite literally, as Nathaniel Bacon, like so many of us did on that classic Oregon Trail game, died of dysentery in October of 1676. Eliot notes, with the unexpected death of its leader, the rebellion faltered and collapsed. Merchants and colonial militia, joined by a regiment of redcoats, arrived and suppressed the surviving fringes of the rebellion. Berkeley was recalled to England and died shortly thereafter, but not before he authorized the execution of nearly two dozen men. That is what prompted Charles to say the aforementioned quote, which really wasn't quite true. Eliot notes, quote, Charles II placed the blame for the rebellion squarely on the misgovernment of Berkeley and his ruling clique. Colonial administration in the Virginia colony, however, would have to be more attuned to the will of the general population moving forward. Well, at least some of it. So once the metaphorical bacon was burned and the colonial government's authority reaffirmed, what happened next? I mean, this doesn't really seem like a big enough issue to land Bacon's rebellion in just about every U.S. history book in the nation. In most texts, it is seen as a precursor event, one of those moments in history that indirectly contributed to something much, much larger. It is a common trope to compare Bacon's social movement in calls for power and political voice to those rebellious colonists of the American Revolution. That's all fine, but a little oversimplified. And the true answer to the question of why this event is so significant to American history is racism. You see, most modern historians actually point to Bacon's rebellion as one of the primary reasons for the move away from white indentured servitude in the Virginia colony towards instead African slave labor. By 1700, old divides between social classes seemed to completely fade away, and the rising population of African laborers led to a quote, growing racial divide between white and black. White Virginian society slowly began to acquire something of the cohesion it had lacked for so long. 
the thing that unified them, sadly, was racism. This seemed to happen quite naturally as poor white farmers found themselves more enfranchised and achieved greater say in politics. But historian of Atlantic slavery Karen Blackburn notes, quote, The House of Burgesses sought to strengthen the racial barrier between English servants and African slaves. As early as 1680, policies were being enacted to increase punishment to black laborers that differed from that of white workers. As the slave presence increased in the colony, the policy seemed to intensify more and more until it was finally codified in 1705 with the passage of the first Virginia slave codes. These laws formally prevented blacks from owning weapons and regulated interactions between slaves and white colonists. Considering that Bacon worked with all members of the lower class regardless of race, I can't really blame him for this, but it is still the harsh reality and truer legacy of Bacon's rebellion. Seems to be more of a precursor of race and class injustice in America than it would be to the revolution. And I don't know how it happened, but all this fire talk got my engines burning for more fire, and down the rabbit hole I fell. So you remember the Great Fire of 1666 brought up in Charles II's story, and the palace that he died in, that moment where he truly survived. Ironically, the royal palace at Whitehall survived the Great Fire of 66, but only a small portion of it stands today. I mean, all we hear about today is Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace, Big Ben, etc. But what happened to Whitehall, what was once described as the Versailles of England? Surprise, it burned to the fucking ground. Originally called York Place, the small residence was home to several cardinals throughout English history until King Henry VIII, who actually reminds me a good bit of Charles II, decided to dump the Catholic Church so he could whore around a little bit. The palace was acquired by the royal family in 1530, and Whitehall, supposedly named for the building's white stones, became the palace's official name around 1532. In the 1620s, Charlie II's grandfather, James I, commissioned some of the most significant additions to the palace, including the Banqueting House, one of the only pieces of the palace that remains fully intact today. Designed by English architect Inigo Jones, it was actually the backdrop of Charles I's execution in 1649. Charles II and his brother King James II commissioned several works and additions to the palace under the direction of Christopher Wren, including Catholic chapels for James I and his Catholic friends. In fact, Catherine de Braganza's famous chapel at St. James Place, which still stands today, became a refuge for affluent London Catholics after the passage of the Test Act, and that actually seems like kind of a neat thing to explore on a Patreon bonus episode, but not for today. Although the building survived the Great Fire of 1666, it in fact faced devastation and ruin in the 1690s. By 1691, the palace had actually become one of the largest and most complex structures in all of Europe. In that very same year, a fire broke out in one of the buildings that was once used by one of Charles II's mistresses. But it still survived that fire. It wasn't until 1698 when another fire broke out that most of the palace's buildings were fully destroyed. On January 4th, a fire that raged for more than 17 hours destroyed every building save the banqueting house which was only spared because William III decided it was worth saving. A few smaller buildings also survived, many of which have since been demolished. But Henry VIII's wine cellar luckily also survived the blaze. Whitehall was truly a Stuart palace. From the masterworks of Inigo Jones to Christopher Wren, Stuart monarchs commissioned a palace that was said to rival all like it in Europe. As we have seen in this show, palaces often serve as a lasting and permanent symbol of the greatness of minds and kings alike. But if you ask me, Whitehall serves as a symbol for something else. Something more fitting of the Stuart monarchs. Whitehall serves as a symbol of Stuart greatness. 
Greatness that, like the monarchs themselves, never seemed to last. Much like the Stuarts, it was fragile and a victim of chaos it could not control. Well, as we wrap this episode up, let's talk about today's drink. I started with a shot, but actually ended up dumping the other shot into a delicious favorite from my college bartending days, the match made in heaven that is Angry Orchard and Fireball Whiskey. These two drinks are like a catastrophic nightmare of sweet heat that honestly created more forgotten evenings than fond memories. After a long night of bartending and a few Jaeger bombs, what we called house wine by the way, Angry Orchard was about as refreshing as a beverage as you could ask for, but refreshing wasn't really the point. For today, I will just be rating Fireball, as it comes with far less guilt than the 24 grams of sugar in a bottle of Angry Orchard. <clears throat> in terms of taste, well, it's cinnamon whiskey laced with sad amounts of sugar, 11 grams per fucking shot. Although my 30-something body won't take this as well as my 20-year-old self did, there's no denying that this shit is delicious. It's a little too sweet, but there was a time when that was just okay. And when you add it with another 24 grams of sugar in Angry Orchard, it creates a delicious diabetic dream. Five points for taste. Price was really surprisingly cheap, as I went with a couple of airplane-sized bottles coming in at 99 cents per mini. But a 750 milliliter bottle sits at around 11.99, and for just $7 more, you can more than double the size of your bottle. Tough choices for sure, but very fair pricing. Six points for a great price, especially for a big-name brand. Now comes the trickier part, as I have returned to Fireball many times in my life, but this is actually the first shot of it that I have done since I left Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania and my old job at Ginger Hill Tavern. And it is as I feared, nothing about this is sitting very nicely. If you like a little heat and a little sweet, then you will find yourself returning to everything I have mentioned tonight. But for me, this is a one and done. Since this is a history podcast, however, I will be fair to my 24-year-old self and judge this drink on past experiences as well. Only losing one point for me not planning to return again, but vaguely recalling many a fun night at the bar, Fireball leaves the show with five points for returnability, mostly thanks to countless past returns. Fireball is looking pretty hot with 16 out of 18 points and 6 crowns, and it has left me burning for more. This episode may have contained a solid 50 carbs in one drink and a shot, and even more shitty puns, but I suck at math, so maybe I added it up wrong. Sneaking in one more fucking fire pun, I guess I will just have to burn off these drinks at the gym. Well, that's it. If you enjoy Drinks with Great Minds in History, then follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. There you can get a round of DGMH daily. If you love the show and want access to even more content, then be sure to visit the DGMH Patreon page with content available to all supporters from the $1 level and up. Please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Tonight we talked a lot about fire. I can't say I really saw this round of The Chaser taking on such a hot topic, but it certainly did. As the past burns, new, exciting, sometimes tragic realities seem to emerge from the flame. In a way, Charles's story is one of a man, a monarch, rising from the ruinous ashes of the English Civil Wars, even if his flame didn't burn as bright as others. Following Bacon's rebellion, Virginia would take a turn down a more racist path. However, in London, fire sparked an architectural revolution, but later destroyed the epicenter of royal government. So what the hell, raise a glass to change. It's not always good, but once the fire starts to burn, it sure can be hard to stop. Cheers! Cheers!